Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. President Jimmy Carter is not often ranked among our greatest presidents, but our next guest does consider him among the most underrated. Stuart Eisenstadt was a member of the Carter administration. He was Carter's domestic policy advisor and also served Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama in a number of capacities. Now he's the author of a richly detailed book titled President Carter, The White House Years. Mr. Eisenstadt will be in town this week discussing it, and he joins us now by phone. A great pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you. It's very much a pleasure to be talking to you, and I'm looking forward to talking at uh, Wash U and at the university as well. Well, I'm, folks here are, are anxious to see you. I have to tell you, uh, having read your book, all 900 pages of text, I had to say to myself, I'm glad Mr. Carter did not serve two terms, otherwise I'd still be reading it. Well, fortunately, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and even conservative publications like the National Review have given, given an exceptional reviews, and it's particularly meaningful to be in Missouri because President Carter's political hero was Harry Truman, and he placed his famous slogan, the buck stops here, on his Oval Office uh, desk, and both left the White House widely unpopular. Truman is now recognized, I think, more for his achievements than his faults, and I hope my book will contribute to a similar reassessment of Jimmy Carter. I'm not nominating him for a place on Mount Rushmore, but I believe that he was the most accomplished and most underrated one-term president we've had. Almost 70% of our legislation was passed, and he had enormous impact on both domestic and foreign policy of a lasting nature. We certainly want to talk more about that, but I, I can't not begin by asking you for a comment on, uh, you serve Democratic presidents, of course, but your thoughts about the passing of George H.W. Bush. Yes, I had uh, a very, very good relationship with him from a number of perspectives. The first was, he was the CIA director uh, when he briefed President-elect Carter after our 1976 victory, and I was the only staff person there, and it was a very detailed uh, and, and excellent briefing. Second, when he was seeking authority uh, for Congress to give him the right to send troops in after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I organized a group of Democrats and worked with the White House and with him to lobby the Democrats to support him. And in typical gracious fashion, he invited me to the private residence for a reception. I still have a photo uh, with him together. Uh, and it's typical of his graciousness. He was in many ways uh, somewhat like uh, Carter, a ferocious campaigner, but who did, when he was in office, what he thought was the politically right thing rather than the politically advantageous thing. It's not coincidence, perhaps, that both were one-term presidents. But that's also a factor, if I may say, that both had difficult economies. I worked with President Clinton uh, for eight years. We beat uh, Bush in, in uh, the 88 election in significant part because of the state of the economy, and we lost the election to Ronald Reagan and the Carter administration in 1980, both because of the bad state of the economy and the hostage crisis. So there are many comparisons, but he was a great man, a great patriot, a great uh, fighter pilot, and enrolled at uh, 18 years of age, and really believed uh, in service to the country. You know, with all we've heard about uh, about uh, George H.W. Bush, and having read your book on, on Jimmy Carter, you know, these two guys were really dignified and dedicated gentlemen. And I, you know, I compare that to what's going on today, and it just makes my eyes roll even more. Yes, you're right. They, they are very similar in that respect. They both reached across the aisle. 
many of our major accomplishments, the Panama Canal Treaty, three major energy bills, which have made us much less energy dependent on OPEC, uh, environmental legislation, all of these things were done with bipartisan support in the Carter years, and many of the accomplishments that President Bush reached, uh, Clean Air Act, uh, the budget deal with the Democrats, were done across the aisle. There was a recognition, of course, that there's partisanship. It's built into the system, but that partisanship shouldn't get in a way of compromise, of tolerance, of treating the opposition in a respectful way, and may I say, treating the institutions of government in the appropriate way. President Carter, for example, in part of our ethics legislation, uh, we ran against Watergate. Uh, we created the special counsel's office. And ironically, the first target of the special counsel was none other than his own chief of staff, Ham Jordan, who was falsely accused by Roy Cohn, who was Donald Trump's uh, uh, original mentor. political mentor, yeah. of snorting cocaine at Studio 54 in New York, a totally false charge. And it was proven so. But that's not the point. The point is that Carter not once during that investigation in a re-election year ever called it a witch hunt, ever said it was political, ever tried to intervene. That's, of course, very opposite in the way uh, that uh, Mr. Mueller is being treated. So I think Bush and Carter came from the same cloth. Uh, Carter was a Naval Academy graduate. Uh, Bush served in the, in the military, as did President Carter. They came from a generation in which there was respect for institutions, a respect for differences, a respect for people of different parties, and a, a recognition that our system only really works well when we can compromise. Do you think that uh, the, the Carter administration was the victim of, of bad luck or bad management? No, I don't, t I don't try to excuse bad luck. And, and one of the reasons that the book has gotten good reviews is it's honest about his mistakes as well as mine. This is not a book they could have recalled if you'd only listened to me. Uh, the, the rap on Carter rests on what I call four eyes: inflation, Iran, inexperience of himself and his Georgia mafia, and inter-party warfare with Ted Kennedy and the Democratic Party. And those are all, in fact, real problems. I don't whitewash them in the book, but they've overwhelmed and obscured the tremendous accomplishments at home and abroad that he reached. Uh, major energy bills, ethics bills, uh, being the most environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt, doubling the size of the national park system, deregulating all of our major transportation systems and bringing transport, airline transportation to the middle class, appointing more women and minorities to senior positions and judgeships in all 38 presidents put together, creating a modern vice presidency and making a real partner with Walter Mondale. And yes, as much as inflation was a real Achilles heel, at the end of the day, it was Carter who called us in and said, I've tried everything. Nothing's worked. I'm going to appoint Paul Volcker and take the stiffest medicine, even if it means my reelection of monetary policy and pointing it to head the Fed, knowing, because Volcker told him, I'm going to raise uh, interest rates by tightening the money supply. It's going to cause unemployment to go up. In your election year, don't appoint me if you're not prepared for it. Carter did because he didn't want his legacy to be high inflation, and it worked, but only after the first year of Reagan, not to help us. And in, in foreign policy, Camp David, the Egypt-Israel peace treaty, or perhaps the greatest presidential diplomacy in history. He put human rights at the center of his uh, foreign policy. The Panama Canal Treaty 
created a whole new era in U.S.-Latin American relations. We recognized China uh, diplomatically. We applied hard power to the Soviet Union after Afghanistan. So all of these things are positive. And again, I don't shirk from discussing the mistakes we made, and they were serious on Iran with inflation and the like. But again, I'm trying to provide a total assessment of the 39th president. And when the total is chalked up, you see enormous lasting accomplishments as well, yes, as the mistakes and problems that we had. And part of that legacy, it has to be pointed out, he didn't drop a single bomb. No American died in combat during, uh, during his four years. Uh, that, that's something to, that should be pointed out. Yes, I mean, we were not, he was, even though he was a Navy man, he was a submariner. Uh, he didn't have a hair trigger. He was very cautious about the application of military force. He built our military up against the Soviet Union. We deployed uh, the MX missile and the cruise missile, and we green-lighted the introduction of intermediate nuclear weapons to deal with the Soviet Union. But he did not pull that trigger. He was very cautious, I think because he had seen the huge force of uh, nuclear weapons when he served in the nuclear navy. Uh, and he did other courageous things. His first day in office was highly unpopular. He granted amnesty to those who had evaded the draft in Vietnam. His son had served in Vietnam. He had served. But he wanted to heal the wounds of the country. And that's another major di difference with what we've got now. Carter ran as an outsider. So did Trump. But the difference is, when Carter came in, he wanted to reform government. He wanted to pull people together. He wanted to empower minorities and the disadvantaged. He wanted to bring us together. He wanted to reach across the aisle. He didn't want to create a divisive situation. And that's a very real difference from running as an outsider and, and stoking a base and angering that base and turning the base against others. You know, uh, you alluded to this a moment ago, but I'd like to go into a little more detail. I'm not sure that everybody understands uh, the way he and Vice President Walter Mondale worked together. It was almost, almost a co-presidency situation, that, and that situation uh, continues, continues to some degree today. Yes, the vice presidency was a constitutional afterthought of our founding fathers. It was a position uh, really sidelined. Uh, John Nance Carter, who was FDR's first vice president, said it wasn't worth a warm bucket of spit, and I'm being uh, diplomatic right. on the radio. Uh, it was really, I mean, Humphrey was totally cut out. Harry Truman in your state didn't know that there was an atomic bomb project until after FDR died. Mondale and Carter were determined to make him a real partner. After the election in 76, Mondale gave him a list of 10 requests, access to all classified documents, the ability to go into any meeting, one-on-one -on -one sessions for lunch every week, just the two of them in the Oval Office. Carter approved every one of them and then even added another one, and a most important one. He moved the entire office of the vice presidency from across the alleyway at the executive office from the West Wing into the West Wing, just down from the Oval Office. And just as in real estate, where location is crucial, it is in politics. It was a symbol that's lasted since that this was going to be not an afterthought. It was going to be a real partner. And he was crucial on a number of things, the Panama Canal Treaty on human rights on the Middle East and getting things done. What about the influence of uh, the president's wife, Rosalind Carter? 
I saw Rosalind grow from a campaign wife when he was running for governor, because that was his policy director then, as well as when he ran for president, uh, from being so shy, she literally couldn't get up on a stump to speak. And I saw her bloom and flower as a first lady. She was only the second first lady after Eleanor Roosevelt to testify in Congress and on her own legislation, which she drafted with her staff on mental health and got it passed. She attended cabinet meetings. She went on sensitive missions in Latin America to deliver his tough human rights uh, policy that we're going to cut off arms for the uh, dictators. She was a great political force. And if I may say, I mean, Carter's strength and his weakness were the same, and she understood that. His strength was that he was a ferocious campaigner, but he parked politics at the Oval Office door to do what he considered the right thing, and that's why he could do Panama and the Middle East and energy, which were politically unpopular. She said to him, Jimmy, don't do Panama. Wait till the second term. It's too controversial. He said, well, suppose there isn't a second term. So she had that kind of political sensitivity. Uh, but it was also a weakness because, and here again, I'm very candid, uh, a president is not just commander-in-chief. He has to be politician-in-chief. He has to nurture his base. He has to keep his party behind him. And that President Trump is very good at. President Carter was less good at it. And that's why he had a challenge from Ted Kennedy that split the party and, and helped weaken him going into the 1980 reelection with Ronald Reagan. You just mentioned a second term. We have a caller who wants to get into this conversation who has a question about the second campaign, I believe. Let's bring in Sam calling from St. Louis. How you doing, sir? Thank you for bringing up so many things that I forgot about Jimmy Carter and they, or perhaps never knew. So thank you. But also, I want you, I'd like for you to comment, you know, in the saying that Bush just died, uh, the October surprise where where Bush and, Bush and Reagan delayed the, um, the freeing of the Iranian hostages. And then also, I'd love for you to comment on, um, on the um, Global 2000, Global 2000 under Jimmy Carter. So the October surprise is very important, and I'm going to be very frank again, as I am in the book. Number one, Jim Baker, who was his campaign manager, Ronald Reagan's, and became Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury, admitted in one of the 350 interviews I've done for the book, and by the way, it's also based on 5,000 pages of my contemporaneous uh, notes, that they stole our debate book eight days before the election when the debate occurred. Jim admitted that. They knew all of our attack lands. That is admitted uh, and uh, confirmed in Senate testimony. Now, the October surprise was crucial. I do not uh, assert that it actually occurred, but there certainly was a congressional hearing about it, and Gary Sick, who was our national security counsel, Iran expert, asserted so in a book. And that is we could not get an agreement on releasing the hostages during the Carter administration. It was incredibly debilitating for 444 humiliating days. We had many agreements, and Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of the revolution, turned it down. Now, what was asserted in Gary Sick's book and in some congressional testimony was the following, that George H.W. Bush, the vice presidential nominee, went to Mexico during the campaign, and that his campaign manager went to Paris during the campaign. It's not clear who they met with, but there are not a lot of votes there. Did they do anything to say to Khomeini, don't release the hostages, it'll elect, re-elect Carter? It's never been proven. I'm not asserting it. I am saying that there uh, were clouds over it, and there was a full congressional hearing. What is clear is that 
Khomeini only released the hostages literally the minute after Reagan was uh, inaugurated, even though we reached the agreement beforehand. And clearly, what is also factual is the Iran-Contra affair. That is that uh, shortly after President Reagan took office, huge amounts of uh, U.S. military supplies were given to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. The money for that then went to the Contras. So it is clear that we did not give him, Iran, uh, and Ayatollah Khomeini, the kind of weapons that might have released the hostages during his administration. So again, I'm being very careful. Uh, I'm not asserting that this happened. I am suggesting that there, others have said there is at least circumstantial evidence. There was an inconclusive congressional hearing. Uh, but what is clear is that hostages were not released until the second after we uh, left office and that Reagan did then shortly thereafter give huge amounts of arms to the Iranians. I'd like to return to Rosalind Carter for a moment. Uh, we digressed a bit with the, with the call and the campaign. What do you make of the the uh, critics who spoke of her as the steel magnolia? This yes, that's highly unfair. Uh, steel magnolia suggests someone who uh, has a front of being sweet, and then uh, in fact is just as hard as nails. That is not Rosalind. I just saw her four weeks ago in planes with Jimmy Carter. They've been married seventy-two and a half years. She's a loving wife and a very sweet person. She is also a very good politician. But the notion that somehow she had a facade of kindness and an inner uh, sense of coldness is absolutely not true. She's just as warm inside as she is outside. Yes, she's a darn good politician, but she never dominated. She never she suggested, but she never insisted. You know, a couple of things that I must talk about, because I think when many people look back on the Carter administration, they'll bypass some of the accomplishments and some of the other things that uh, maybe weren't accomplishments. And what they will talk about will be the Malay's speech, which was actually the crisis of confidence speech, uh, his Playboy interview in which he spoke of lust in his heart, and then that killer rabbit, which you you tell that story in the book as well. I do. So... Let's take uh, the lust in the heart. <laughs> that almost lost us. That almost lost us the election. And by the way, wouldn't it be nice to have a president who only had lust in his heart? But that's another story. <laughs> so when Carter was interviewed during the general election campaign by Playboy, why did he do the interview? Because his communications people said he came across as such a straight Baptist that they thought he wouldn't appeal to young people. So he did a straight Playboy interview, no trick questions. And as the reporter was leaving. Unbeknownst to Carter, he still had his tape recorder on, and he said, you're a Baptist. What does the Bible say and what does Christ say about those who have a temptation? And he said, the Bible says, and, and Christ says directly, you can lust in your heart. You're not supposed to go any further. So that somehow became uh, a watchword, and it, it seemed to implicate that he wasn't a real Baptist. Quite the contrary, he was quoting from Scripture. With respect to uh, the Malay speech, that term was never used. It was uh, a backgrounder by one of his uh, pollsters, Pat Cadell. It was a crisis of confidence speech, and this did cause a huge tension with Walter Mondale and, frankly, with myself. He canceled an energy speech, saying he had given five of them, he wasn't going to give another. There were gas lines because of the Iranian revolution and the cutoff of oil. He went to Camp David, re 
for 10 days, had experts give him advice, and then put together this crisis of confidence speech. Contrary to our thought, and Mondale and I were both against it, we wanted to give an energy speech, uh, it had an enormous impact. His polls went up 17% in a day. An old la- uh, older lady in the mailroom of the White House and the bowels, who had been there since Franklin Roosevelt's days, said she had never seen such an outpouring of mail in her life. And then what happened was a grievous mistake. He decided to ask for the resignation of his entire cabinet to show that he was now in control, although he was only going to fire a couple. And that totally stepped on all the headlines, all the momentum from the crisis of confidence speech. It was a total disaster, and Mondale was so distraught about it that he told me personally, and I disclose it now for the first time in the book, that he was close to resigning. He didn't, of course, but he was extraordinarily upset about the way in which the whole thing was handled. Only a minute left. I have to bring in the killer rabbit. So the killer rabbit, he he was in a little rowboat in a small lake in Plains. I've seen it many times. And rabbits run into that lake all the time when they're traced. Uh, when they're, uh, uh, you know, running away from different animals. And they came up to his boat, and he just uh, took a oar and, and knocked it away. Nobody saw it. Months later, Jody Powell, mistakenly, thinking it was just a joke, told an AP reporter of this, and he, Jody, said, you know, this killer rabbit came, Carter defended himself. It was, he was joking. I mean, it was just a little rabbit. Uh, but somehow that became a metaphor, as did the failure at Desert One, which people say too few helicopters. No, Carter had two more helicopters than the military wanted. But the killer rabbit became sort of a metaphor for uh, the presidency and overwhelmed all of the accomplishments that I've mentioned, along with some of the other failures that I've said. Just some of the things uh, that are detailed in your book. It is so wonderfully done and put together, and there's so much information. Stuart Eisenstadt, I want to thank you for being with us, and also to tell our audience that the Danforth Center for Religion and Politics is presenting an evening with Stuart Eisenstadt at the Edison Theater on the Washington University campus this Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. St. Louis looks forward to having you come in, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Don Marsh.